Yeah, Jello dismissed. They're cheering, man. They're ready to go up to their class. Uh, I'm not going to sit the whole sermon, uh, but I feel like death warmed over, but not that warmed over. You know, I just feel terrible. I don't know. Like I, you guys know a couple weeks ago I had to call in sick for the first time in the history of our church. Um, and I felt better last week, but last night, man, I just, I, I felt like I was dying. I, I was like, you know, doing that thing where I'm laying in bed and Holly's asleep and she looks really satisfied. And I'm like, oh, oh, I feel terrible. And she's just like sleeping. And there was no one to hear my cries except the Lord. Um, so uh, I, I thought I'd take this opportunity to look a little bit relevant and sit on a stool for a few minutes. I already feel more like a mega church pastor than I ever have in my life. Um, we're preaching this morning from Exodus 13, 14, and 15. So I picked a nice short text uh, for us. Last week we kind of zoned in on one particular happening in the Exodus narrative. This week we're looking at sort of uh, a new beginning right there. Uh, God's people are leaving Egypt. There's this great Exodus, this small sort of band of nomads has become a uh, a larger nation of almost two million people, counting uh, men, women, boys, and girls, and they are journeying to the promised land, and it's going to take them some time to get there. And so we're beginning that process, we're beginning that journey uh, here this morning. So I think it's a long text, but it will flow well, and we won't necessarily go over every single word. But before we do, uh, I wanted to take a moment and, and just sort of remember what we're doing and remember what we're not doing as a church planting team. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and um, let's say in Charleston there are about 50,000 people, right, in, in Charleston proper. It's a little bit less than that, but in the sort of greater Charleston area, there's a whole lot more than that. But let's, for you know, the ease of math, because I am horrible with math, let's stick with 50,000 as our number. Uh, some religious data from 2014, I think, indicates that about 10% uh, of people who live in Charleston uh, profess to be Christian in some sort. So that could be Orthodox, uh, Catholic, uh, mainline, or evangelical. So let's say that's about 5,000 people. So let's say in Charleston proper, of 50,000 people, let's say there are about 5,000 people who would be willing to go to a new church, right? Who would be willing to go to a place where they thought that the music was good, the preaching was relevant, uh, the, the relationships they made were cool. And if I'm being completely honest with you, you might think it's harsh, I would say prophetic, we can argue about it after church, right? That, that 5,000 people is sort of the market over which churches implicitly compete. That's the market share. These are the people who are interested in what we're selling, so to speak. And so what happens is, there's this sort of marginally better movement that I call, right? Let's have marginally better worship services. Let's have marginally better uh, programs. Let's have marginally better um, buildings. Let's sort of get in an arms race over these 5,000 people so that we can claim that we are, in fact, reaching the city, when, in fact, we may be, but there is a growing number of people by the day who have no interest in church. They have no interest in the gospel. They have no interest in the Bible. They have no interest in coming to a place every week and singing praise to God and taking communion and volunteering their time to serve other people and hearing the word of God preached and confessing their sin. They have no interest in that. And so I want to just make sure we always remember 
that through the successes and through the failures, we are not trying to be a marginally better church to compete for that 5,000 person market share. We understand that there are 45,000 people in that scheme who need to hear the gospel. And so we have to be more impressed with our ability to put ourselves in their lives, to love them, to serve them, to get to know them, and to present to them the good news of Jesus and its implications for all of life than we are with how many people come here on a Sunday morning. Because what we want pushes us more than what we believe. So do we want more than anything for necessarily this room to be filled, or do we want more than anything for gospel movements to begin to break through the heart of that 45,000 people? So I just wanted to encourage us this morning, right? The Lord's blessed us. Like, we have grown in this space uh, tremendously. Uh, It's been good. It's been fine. We're doing things so that our, you know, Sunday mornings function better, our put together well, and we're continually trying to improve those things. And as we do that, I just want us to remember that the whole point of this is reaching that 45,000 and not convincing that 5,000. Amen? Amen. So I just wanted to encourage us with that. Uh, I don't know how long I'll sit. That's really nice, though. I might start doing that. Um, So now that that little uh, reminder of our vision is... Uh, over. Let's go ahead and look in the sermon text. We're starting in Exodus chapter 13. Before we read there, we remember that God has just brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, they've witnessed firsthand his power, his wrath, his mercy, his grace, and his deliverance. But remember, uh, these people are new to this concept of life with God. All they've known for over 400 years is life in Northeast Egypt, and all the social, cultural, sociocultural, I guess is a better way to say it, sociocultural and political and economic realities that come with living in Northeastern Egypt. They're not accustomed to direct guidance from a living God, and they understood little of the power of his presence among them. Yes, the Exodus marks an ending of the Egyptian chapter of the story of Israel, but really it's just the beginning of their story as a nation. In our text this morning, God initiates this process of leading his people through the wilderness across the Red Sea and eventually, though a long ways off, into the promised land. And I think on this journey, we'll see this morning and we'll see in the weeks ahead, God's beginning to teach his people what life with him is all about. You know, I think... We're all really learning what life with God is about. Some of you have walked with him for decades. Others have only begun your journey. And in a very real sense this morning, I think we can um, sort of empathize with the Israelites. We're living now in a place that's not our ultimate home. We live among a people who worship false gods and know not the glory of the one who made them and loves them. So this morning we're going to think about, oh boy, don't feel good. Think about how to be sick and preach. This morning we're going to think about life with God. We'll learn or be reminded of four truths. First, God knows what's best for us. Second, God is with us and God goes before us. 
Third, God's power is unmatched and his deliverance is final. And fourth, life with this God is a life of worship. Look with me in chapter 13, verses 17 through 20, which Derek read so well for us. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and turn to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Now, let's remember, just because they're equipped for battle doesn't change the reality that they've never battled. And that they're a good bit smaller than the surrounding nations. And God is taking them sort of this long way around because if they go through the land of Philistia, they're going to come into contact with an army who uh, may perhaps overwhelm them and discourage them and tempt them to return home, uh, home, right, to Egypt. The first reality about life with God I want us to consider is that he knows what's best for us. There is a better way to their destination than the one they're taking. I mean, imagine if you're going on a trip um, somewhere and you put it in your, uh, whatever your GPS device is, like if you use Apple Maps, which I always use because I think Apple is um, the best. Or if you use Google Maps or if you use Waze or whatever you happen to use, you put the, uh, the, the, the address in that app and it gives you like three or four options, right? Like this way is going to take three hours and 45 minutes. This way is going to take three hours and 31 minutes. This way is going to take three hours and 15 minutes, right? We're going to take the shortest way possible. I mean, it's, it makes sense to make your trip as short and as easy as possible. Imagine, right, this track to the promised land being opened up and there being a, a direct way and then a way that goes like, and then kind of gets there, right? God has chosen that long way around, There is a way to get there that's shorter, but the shorter path is not always the better path. The shorter path is not always the better path. I don't want to allegorize this too much, but I think there is a parallel here with life with God. The shorter path is not always the better path. So they circumvent the Philistines to avoid war taking this longer path around that God has graciously laid before them. The shorter path is not always the better path. In a life with God, there is no shortcut to holiness. There's no silver bullet that magically transforms us into the people we wish that we were. But there is something, well, in fact, someone who's better than a silver bullet who takes us where we want to be and makes us exactly who we want to be. We have a living God who knows what's best for us and will do the sort of work necessary to conform us into his image. This God sees the bigger picture. I mean, look at our text, this sort of odd moment in verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel Uh, solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So there's this moment where the people of God are bringing the bones of Joseph, one of their great patriarchs, out of the land of Egypt. They've brought with them, they've had with them for some time and they're taking them to the promised land, right? These bones are being carried out of Egypt as a testament that God is faithful. God remembers the bigger picture. God remembers the promise he made to Abraham. Joseph believed that promise that he made to Abraham. Joseph believed that promise was extended through him. And Joseph believed that God would one day make good on that 
promise. He told them, wherever you guys go, take my bones with you because I want to end up there because I know God's going to do exactly what he promised to Abraham. You may want something right now in your life, maybe a uh, relationship, maybe a sort of a uh, job, maybe a uh, position. I don't know what exactly it is, but you may want something right now. But if you got that thing right now, perhaps it would lead you straight into Philistia, so to speak. Right? Perhaps it would lead you straight into a war zone, so to speak, right? I'm not telling you not to desire anything out of your life. I'm not telling you to um, not want certain things. I'm just reminding you that God is with you, and God sees the bigger picture. God is with you, and God sees the bigger picture. Now, let's look in verses 21 of chapter 13, and then this portion of text is going to lead us all the way into chapter 14, verse 18. I want us to consider that God is with us and God goes before us. Let's look at the end of chapter 13. Verse 20, and they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in the pillar of, pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Because of a giant pillar in front of them, the Israelites knew all day, every day that God was present with them. Here's a huge, supernatural, visible reminder that Yahweh is leading this caravan. Even if the road is long, he's right there. Amen. But we have a problem. Let's read in chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hacheroth between Migdol and the sea. In front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So let's just read like in some brackets right there. That means the Israelites had absolutely no chance of withstanding these people. Verse 9. No, verse 8, sorry. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. Verse 9. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hacharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. Here 
we go again. I mean, it feels like we cannot get away from the Egyptians. I mean, last week, or a couple weeks ago, we, we preached on the plagues. Last week, we preached about the final plague. I mean, over and over and over again, Pharaoh, yeah, you can go on these terms. Yeah, you can go on these terms. And he changes his mind, changes his mind, changes his mind. God sends plagues in increasing sort of severity. Finally, all of the firstborn die. The people of Israel are delivered from Egypt. And here we are again with the people of Israel who had left the country, are sort of circling back, almost taunting them in a sense, sort of tempting them to come after them. And they start to think, what did we, why did we do that? Why did we let our whole slave labor force just up and leave out of nowhere? So they change their mind. They decide they're going to go after them, and they're going to undo all that has been done. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. Imagine that feeling. And they feared greatly, absolutely. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, there's almost some dark humor in their comment to Moses. Is it because there aren't any graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us to bring us out of Egypt? It's not this what we said to you in Egypt. Leave us alone. That we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're not happy. Moses, though, in verse 13, leads from a place of faith rather than of fear. He says to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Amen. So the people are grumbling to Moses. Moses is addressing the people, and now the Lord addresses Moses at this pivotal moment where their sort of backs are becoming up against the wall and the Egyptians are bearing down on them. He says to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Uh, it's funny that Moses it's telling the people, right, like, be still, right? The, be silent. God is going to fight for us. And God says to Moses, if you're still, you're going to get killed. Take that staff I gave you, put it out over the water, and just go, man. Just charge that thing. That staff that he has, has had from the very beginning, sort of represents God's authority. Take that staff and split that See, I think Moses is probably thinking, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking I was going to do anyways, right? Ultimately, Moses is going to raise that staff. That sea will split, as we'll see in just a moment, and deliverance will come to the Israelites, and judgment will come to the Egyptians who pursue them. I don't know about you, but this text reminds me that our spiritual enemies are really, 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 really persistent. And just when you think you've got them kicked, here they come again. Just when you think your battle with 
Apathy is over. Here comes apathy again. Just when you think you are breaking out of the throes of depression, you don't want to get to bed, uh, get out of bed, and you don't want to talk to anyone again. Just when you think that you are breaking sort of these bonds of uh, anxiety, that you, you start to just be nervous all the time again. Just when you think you're free from pornography, free from whatever these sins are, here they come again pursuing you. Let me just remind you that even in the heat of battle, God is with you, and like that pillar of smoke or fire, God goes before you. That though your spiritual enemies are persistent, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Like no matter what we're going through, whatever we're encountering, it's true that in Christ, God's with us. In Christ, his righteousness goes before us. His righteousness is behind us. And we are completely hemmed in in our union with Christ. I think we can get so scared of being prosperity gospel preachers that we go the opposite way and dumb down the promises of God, that God will deliver us, that God keeps his promises, that all things do work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, I don't know when, how, or where deliverance in your life will come. There's no amount of money you can pay, no prayer you can pray, and no anointing you can get that will force God's hand to deliver you. But the one who goes before you is the one who goes behind you, is the one who's hemmed you in, and is the one who stands with you when your enemies pursue. And his power is unmatched. God is with you. God goes before you. And now let's look in verses 19 and 31 and see that God's power is unmatched and his deliverance is final. Verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. I love that sort of picture of Almighty God sort of coming behind his people and acting as this barrier between them and their enemies. And I think we can see in the text that although the host of Egypt is come, the host of God is moving into formation to protect his people. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on the right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them 
remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I have one question as we consider this portion of the text. Are you serious, Pharaoh? <laughs> right? Really, Pharaoh? Like, literally, all the firstborn of man and beast throughout the whole kingdom were just killed. And you said, get away from me, bless me also. There was a sound of lament, a cry that went out that the world had never heard before because there was not a house in Egypt that did not experience the pain of death. And now, here's Pharaoh once again fooling with God's people. Why would he do that? You would think once you've learned that the stove is hot, you would not continue touching it. Now, to answer that question, we have to understand just a little bit about ancient Near Eastern theology. In Egyptian religions and Egyptians of the people, or religions of the people around Egypt, the gods were uh, capricious. The gods would change their mind. The gods would be overtaken by rage or overtaken by anger or overtaken by love or overtaken by some other feeling. And then the gods would do something so the gods, so to speak, might lash out and uh, kill somebody. But then in the next moment, the gods are picking up their friends and wrapping them in their arms and telling them all about how they are the god of love and they are the god of goodness. These gods were arbitrary. They controlled the world with no discernible character, with no discernible way of being. They just sort of bent to their whims. I almost picture like a, you know, like a, a, a crazy dictator who just sort of does whatever he wants and whatever he feels like doing in that moment he does. And he makes an edict or a decree without really thinking about how that is going to affect his people long term. That's kind of how Pharaoh would have thought about God. So when he thinks about God, he's thinking of the pantheon of gods that he would understand. And so perhaps to him he's thinking, yes, the God of the Israelites has brought such carnage and destruction to Egypt. But like that was a while ago. And so now, we can surely overtake these people. I mean, look at all the hosts we're bringing with us. I mean, look at all these chariots we've got. We are a well-trained, probably full-time military. And here are these people who have been slaves for 400 years who like don't know how to fight. They're trapped against the Red Sea. This is like a can't miss. This is like putting a ball on a tee and letting me just, just knock it out of the park, right? Like this is a can't miss opportunity. This is how Pharaoh perhaps perceived God, but church, this is not who God is. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God does not rule off the whims of a moment. He rules with the end in mind. He is ruling all of human history in which your life is actually included towards his desired ends. God's power is unmatched. If, he's, if his people are trapped between the sea and a mighty army, he will split the sea and drown the army. The people chasing them will be finally killed. 
right? These spiritual enemies chasing you will one day be finally killed. God's power is unmatched and his deliverance is final. We get a taste of Pharaoh sort of rearing his ugly head again, trying to bring God's people back into slavery, but God crushes him with the power of the sea. And I just want to remind you that in your walk with God, there are besetting sins and there are troubles that you walk through and they feel like they're never going to give up but I want to sort of give us some perspective this morning that that Satan, the enemy who chases you, will one day be fully killed. James 4, 7 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why will he flee from you if you resist him? Because he's not God. He's not everywhere at once. Resist him. Resist temptation from wherever it comes. And that temptation will leave. But we know that temptation will come back again until the day that it won't. One day, the head of the serpent will be crushed. One day, your fight with sin will be no more. And I want to remind you that this day, you live in the presence of a God whose power is unmatched and whose deliverance will be final. How do we live in active response to this reality? I think there's only one right way. It's worship. Look with me in Exodus chapter 15. And worship team, if you guys would like to, Come on up as I read this text. I'll read uh, perhaps the whole chapter. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, Moses says, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. 
They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. This is not just a song about how David feels about God, right? This is a song about God. This is a song about what God has done. David, or not David, I'm skipping way ahead in history here. Moses rejoices. The object of his worship is not himself, it's his God. We see he's a triumphant God. He's a personal God. Look in verse 2. Moses, who's tasked with leading God's people, I can't imagine the overwhelming burden of leadership that's on him. He says, the Lord is my strength. He is my power. He is the source of all that I've got. And he's my song. (laughs) He's what I love. He's the one who wakes me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night. He's the one my heart is fixed on. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This Lord who is my strength, this Lord who is my song, he's my joy, this Lord has become my salvation. He has brought deliverance for me. He saved my life. This is my God. I will praise him. He's my Father's God. I will exalt him. He's a man of war. He's powerful. He's a God of glory. He's worth more than the whole of the universe combined. He's a God of power. He's a covenant-keeping God. He's a warrior God. He's unique. He's nothing like the pantheon of gods that Pharaoh would have known about. Because he's just... And his will doesn't change. And because he's just and because his will doesn't change, we can trust him. He is loving and gracious. He's born with his people's complaints. And as you'll see through the rest of Exodus, he will continue to bear with his people through all of their complaints. He will give them food from heaven. And I kid you not, they'll say we're getting bored with how bland this diet is to the same God who's feeding them supernaturally. He is loving, he's patient, he's kind, and he brings salvation. I said in the introduction that that the Israelites are beginning to learn these things about God, but they're not learning them through a series of just ever-increasing successes. And I want to make the case to us that we don't learn how to live with God through a series of ever-increasing successes. I want to 
make the case that perhaps when we're on the longer path than we wanted to be on, that's where we begin to learn that God is, in fact, the one who knows what's best for me. I, I want to be reminded of the fact that perhaps when there's an enemy out there or when I feel threatened, that's when I begin to realize that, that God is my salvation, that his power is unmatched. And I look at his word and I remember that his deliverance is final and that one day the head of the serpent will be fully crushed and Satan and all his minions will be cast into the lake of fire and God will reign forever and ever. God knows what's best for you. He's with you and goes before you. His power is unmatched. And his deliverance is final. He is worth your worship, all your affections, and all your attention. One of the uh, primary ways uh, that God's people have worshiped him throughout history is uh, at this table. Right at this table. We read last week about the Passover. Oh, we should have just taken communion last week, I and mean, the sermon was just so perfect for it. Um, that Jesus, the Passover lamb, sits down with his disciples um, to observe the Passover. Right? It's the night right before he dies. It's the night right before the sham trial happens and he's, he's killed. Um, but the Passover meal that Jesus served that night was unlike any other Passover meal that had ever been served, right? If you remember last week, we talked about how all these things would be expected, but Jesus sits down, he takes the bread, and he what? breaks it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup and he poured it out. He said, this is my blood, which is shed for you. And I don't think the people in the room fully appreciated the magnitude of that moment. Because just before that moment, right, Jesus was telling his disciples, I mean, they knew they needed to observe the Passover feast somewhere. So they say, where are we going to observe the Passover feast? He says, go into the city. There's a guy. He'll be waiting for you. Tell him that your master, tell him that your rabbi has sent you. Why? The text says, because Jesus knew his time had come. Because Jesus knew it was time for him to be placed upon the cross his body broken, his blood shed. It was time for him to act. It was time for him to defeat sin by taking that sin on himself. A new day was dawning. The Passover that all Passovers pointed to had come. He commanded his disciples to do this as often as they gather, right? And for thousands of years now, Christians from all walks of life, they get together, they do different things when they gather, right? They sing different songs. Sometimes they don't sing songs at all. They may do confession. They may have scripture readings. If they're Baptists, they do potlucks. Right? They do different things when they gather. But all people throughout time and space have gathered around this table. All of God's people have gathered around this table proclaiming 
the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the return of Christ. So this morning, we're going to join them around the table, as we do so often. And when you come to the table, as you're standing in line to partake of the elements, I want your mind to go sort of three places, right? I want it to go back to that night at Golgotha, that day where Jesus took up his cross and bled and died for me and you. The Christian faith is grounded in this Christ event. I want you to look back. And I want you to look around. Because life with God entails life with God's people. And God's people in Exodus are not that different from God's people today. They're messed up. (laughs) They get on our nerves. They say the wrong things and they do the wrong things. But they are still God's. Cyprian of Carthage says, no one has God for father that doesn't have church for his mother, right? Look around. None of us are worthy to come take of these elements. We're a vagabond bunch of messed up people. And we're not here together because we all think the same things politically, because we all live in the same town alone, because we like architecture from the early 1900s. We're here because of the crucified and risen King Jesus. Look around at the miracle of grace that it is that these are your brothers and sisters. Look back, look around, and finally look ahead to the day that we partake of this feast with the Lamb again. Imagine just a massive table with your loved ones who have gone before, with martyrs for the church, all over the world, red and yellow, black and white, to quote the children's song. People from all tribes and all tongues and all nations gathered around this table because ultimate deliverance has finally come. The Christian life is a life of worship. Life with God is a life of worship. So Derek and Nick, if you guys would come up. I will not be touching the elements today um, for your benefit and for mine. Uh, we're going to do like we did last time. I thought it was powerful. Um, what we'll do in just a moment is you'll just come forward uh, and we'll line up and Nick and Derek will break off a piece of bread. And I kind of want you to watch him break it, you know? And they'll hand it to you and they'll say, the body of Christ is broken for you. And take it right there. Eat it right then. And then they'll hand you a cup And they'll say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And drink it right there. And you can take it and throw it away uh, or take it back to your seat or or whatever you'd like. But in that moment uh, is your act of worship. So I'm going to pray for us. uh, And I invite anyone who is a follower of Jesus to come to the table. And just like last time, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to feel welcome. Right, the text teaches that this meal is for Christians only. But come to the table anyways. And if you're not a follower of Christ, just kind of put your hands up so that they can see your palms. And let us say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for creating this person. Thank you for loving you. And let us pray for a blessing over you. So I'm going to pray for us. If you're a follower of Christ, come to the table. If you're not, who would like to come, come and let us pray for you. But if you feel more comfortable at your seat, that's fine too. So. 
Let me pray for us, and when I conclude the prayer, um, you can come from either side. Father, you're good, and the wonderful thing about you, one of the many, many wonderful things about you, is that we're always learning about you, right? That if our relationship grows stale, it's definitely not because of you. And this morning, you stir our affections. You're teaching the Egyptians, or you're teaching the Israelites about life with you. And this morning, as we gather for worship, you're teaching us about life with you. You're reminding us that you're always with us. You're reminding us that you go before us and you are behind us. You remind us that your power is unmatched, that nothing we're walking through this morning is too big for you. And you remind us that through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, you have made, are making, and will make all things new. Be with us as we worship at your table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may come forward.